It's the middle of May in Rochester, and Highland Park is alive with the sights, sounds, and smells of the annual Lilac Festival. Nearby, a band sets up to perform in front of a large crowd. Throngs of people shuffle between vendors, offering everything from fried dough to hot tubs. This festival has been one of the area's favorite spring rituals for decades, and for many of us, this park has always been home to endless lilac bushes. In truth, the land in which we enjoy fried foods, expensive beer, and the nearly annual Rusted Root concert hides something tragic just below the roots. Human remains. This picturesque corner of the city was once a remote corner of the town of Brighton, an ideal out-of-the-way location for a jail, hospital, and homeless shelter, and, for several decades, an active cemetery. Today on Rock Tales, we're going to explore the cemetery, the lives of the people who lived and died there, and how dying while poor in Rochester hasn't gotten much easier in the last 200 years. Imagine it's a hot summer day in 1984, and you're taking a walk on Highland Avenue near the corner of South Ave. In the field next to you, some heavy equipment is moving dirt around, when suddenly it stops. You notice that the crew has taken an interest in something lying in the dirt, and you can't help but notice the looks on their faces. Whatever they found, it's a big deal. By the end of the day, news spreads around town that the crew has unearthed six skeletons, over an area the size of a football field. And after some rain washes away more dirt, that number will double. This isn't the first time bones were discovered here. It's the biggest discovery of human remains since the land became part of Highland Park. This is a job for the professionals. The Rochester Museum and Science Center is called in to excavate and catalog everything. It takes three working weeks, but over 300 graves are uncovered. Every piece of jewelry, button, and nail was cataloged. In the end, 296 skeletons were able to be removed from the site out of a possible 700 burials. Those that could be moved were reburied in a plot at Mount Hope Cemetery not far away. This means that over 400 people still remain under our feet at Highland Park. I'm going to explain more about what the museum found, but first, I think we need to explore the same spot back in 1849. Cholera is sweeping through the population. The Monroe County Penitentiary, Almshouse, and Insane Asylum is no stranger to disease. With a vulnerable population living in ultra-cramped quarters, illness makes easy work of this densely populated complex. While 149 Rochester residents died from cholera this year, 28 in the almshouse died from the same disease. Many of the residents here are suffering from conditions that are treatable today. Bad dental health, untreated broken bones, and malnutrition. One third die from typhus, 
known as ship fever back then. According to an article in the Democrat and Chronicle, just two years prior, in 1847, a whole family was wiped out due to various causes. December 1st, 1847, Rosetta Walsh died due to complications of premature birth. A month later, on January 4th, 1848, three-year-old Margaret Walsh died of lung inflammation. Several weeks later, in February 1848, Rosanna Walsh, six months old, died of consumption. Later that year, their mother, Catherine Walsh, died of dysentery. It was, sadly, a frequent occurrence to see a whole family admitted to the site. The almshouse was built to accommodate the rising population of impoverished residents of the county, in large part due to the recent influx of laborers here to build the Erie Canal. Two factors caused an explosion in population, immigration and alcoholism. The latter was one of the leading conditions which caused people to be admitted to the almshouse, roughly two-thirds of the population. News reports often blamed men who earned a wage, then drank it away rather than providing for their families. Recent Irish immigrants, nearly half of the almshouse clientele, were fleeing horrible conditions back home and found themselves at the mercy of public support once they arrived in Rochester. In 1849, the cemetery was already becoming crowded. The land had been purchased in 1826 from the family of Erastus Stanley. The parcel was annexed to grow crops for the residents. However, the Stanleys had a small plot in a far corner of the land which they had used to bury family. With so many deaths occurring every month at the institution, burying everyone at the nearby Mount Hope Cemetery just wasn't economical. Monroe County quietly enclosed the area around the Stanley plot, roughly 125 by 175 feet, with a wooden fence, and began adding graves as they saw fit. This practice would continue from the formation of the penitentiary up until about 1873, when the county made a resolution that the superintendents of the penitentiary and of the county poor be and is hereby directed in the future to discontinue the burial of paupers or criminals in the old burying ground attached to the penitentiary, and to have the remains of all such interred in Mount Hope Cemetery. Although lauded as a model for other institutions, the Monroe County Alms House, Asylum, and Penitentiary had been heavily criticized over its 145-year existence as everything from a fire hazard, filthy, and otherwise inhumane. In 1911, the Women's Educational and Industrial Union commissioned Reverend Caroline Bartlett Crane to conduct a sanitary survey of Rochester. Her report focused on everything from water quality to housing, with a significant portion of her report addressing conditions in the South Avenue complex. All that can be said is that a serious fire has not yet occurred in the Rochester Alms House. Should it occur, it's evident that all of the 300 aged, feeble, and often demented or crippled people would hardly be gotten out alive by the very small number of able-bodied persons in the building, especially at night. The lack of privacy is a deplorable fault of the Monroe County Almshouse. There are no separate rooms, nor even any double rooms, for any of the men or women. The smallest dormitory contains four beds. 
Many of the dormitories contain 12, 14, or 22 beds. The ventilation is poor. The rooms are so filled that many of the beds would be too near the windows to admit of their being kept open in the winter without drafts. In the winter, when the number of inmates is at the largest, a few men sleep in the basement, the floor of which is on level with the ground. I have found so many cases of cruel and pitiable neglect that I must condemn basement quarters in the interest of both sanitation and humanity. The detention rooms for insane suspects are unfit for use. The women's room, and I am informed, the men's room is the same, is situated in the basement and is reached by a very dark hall. It is exposed to glaring sun and was intolerably hot from the steam pipes and unventilated so far as I could see. The women found there behind bars appeared to be neglected, as would almost inevitably be the case where one is remotely situated in an institution. I consider the isolation and incarceration of a sick or insane person in such quarters a cruelty. A local reporter remarked, Her attention is directed to evils which are held to be inexcusable and which must be ameliorated before Rochester can be called an ideal city of homes. It's clear that, at the time of publication, the 85-year-old institution was showing its age. Yet Monroe County had a long way to go before coming up with a better solution to addressing its sick and impoverished residents. One of the most fascinating parts of this story is the rediscovery of the pauper graveyard next to the old penitentiary site. As I mentioned earlier, the county had turned the land over to Highland Park in the 1970s. And as the Lilac Festival was just becoming tradition for Rochester, the county decided to make the land a bit more usable for a large-scale festival. At the time, they had no idea the project was going to launch one of the most exciting archaeological digs this city has seen in recent memory. Now, I was lucky enough to get access to the journals of the RMSC team. Here are a few of the highlights. August 7th, 1984. Lots of discussion of logistics. The Monroe County attorney was also involved, since uncovering an old county cemetery could trigger some legal issues. Photos were taken, and the soil was tested. The bulldozer on site was used to scrape the soil off the top of the hill and relocate it to the lower area, bringing the hill down to a height of three feet. The remaining work in that area will be done with shovels. September 18, 1984. Arrived 8.05 a.m., began taking down area where a corner of a coffin was found. A bulldozer was brought in to start scraping the dirt inch by inch to uncover the graves. Now, a note. It became obvious that damage to the graves was impossible to avoid with the equipment they had used so far. The bulldozer had already damaged caskets, removing dirt from the site, but also whole chunks of wood on every pass. Damage from shovels was also unavoidable. Many caskets were only a few inches below the ground surface, and a large portion of the caskets were caved in. September 19, 1984. Burial number 7. Skull broken and chest area caved in and scattered by dozer. Brass ring found on right finger of right hand, which was clenched around right femur. Right femur broken, probably by dozer weight. Now, the south side of the cemetery had very sandy soil, and this affected the quality of bones found here. 
Poor drainage left bones often too soft to be removed in one piece. In some areas, bones were found in great shape, while the caskets had all but disintegrated in the soil, leaving dark brown stains behind to indicate the size and orientation of the caskets. Many caskets were buried on top of each other. Over time, graves would collapse, and bodies would appear to be buried together. September 22, 1984 Burial 48, left hand over sacrum, right on femur, legs cut off middle of tibia and fibula, possibly pre-mortem, finger bones scattered to knees, vertebrae column disarranged slightly, pre-mortem loss right mandible molars, copper stain, head west, big rock against back of skull, not much wood, trace left side, Nails all around it. Big male. About two feet deep. Length of pit. 72 inches. September 25th, 1984. Number 15C finally uncovered. Except for head, the body is in anatomical position. Right hand seems to be mostly missing. The skull was apparently shoveled out when the grave was reopened for subsequent coffins. The skull was stuffed back in to the end of the coffin, just superior to the coffin of 15B. September 28, 1984. When leaving today, a police car pulled up and asked if the department might send someone to take training pictures for forensic purposes. September 30, 1984. Arrive at site at 9.30 a.m. Again, vandalism has occurred last night. Dark pink candle wax can be found all around burials which were open but not removed. All plastic coverings were removed in the skull areas. A candle was left in burial number 127. Charles called police at 10.15 a.m. to report. October 13, 1984. Last day. All burials in area to be graded have been removed except those deep enough so as not to be disturbed. A total of 301 burials have been removed, not including the double and triple deckers. It was a fantastic experience. The researchers kept an exhaustive list of objects found in each grave. Some of the most common items were wood, bones, nails, glass objects, a brass ring, some red paint from the coffins, numerous brass buttons, assorted textiles, shells, a crucifix, rosary beads, some hair, and organic materials. Some less common but interesting items were a tobacco pipe, flowers, a possible kidney stone, brass earrings, loose teeth, something labeled historic ceramics, a penny, and a drill bit. All 305 skeletons were transported to the RMSC. In January of 1985, the remains were analyzed to determine age, sex, and health issues of the bodies. Later that year, they were finally laid to rest in a plot in Mount Hope Cemetery. Although we know a bit more about death and poverty in the 19th century, it's very much an ongoing problem to this day. I was hoping I'd learn that, although we don't have an official almshouse like we did back then, maybe things have gotten a bit more dignified since then. I turned to an old friend, Don Skillman, who runs Memorials Co-op 
out of the Hungerford building. They work in cooperation with the Dorothy Day House to offer training to people who struggle with housing. In this case, they're learning woodworking by building coffins. Yeah. I teach the guys here because I'm the shop foreman. It's supposed to be my title. But I don't look at titles as titles. Everybody's equal here. We all do put our minds together and get things done. So, uh, why we, well, like I said, Sean Taylor was one of our guests at St. Joe's. He was in our shelter, and he was a, and he passed away, and they were burying him in a cardboard box, actually a real cardboard box, like you would buy anything in. And so we looked into it. I looked into it for about three to four months, and I said, well, there's a need for this. And so did Tom Malthanger and uh, Tim Segris. We all see a need for it. So what we did is we built the first one in Dorothy Day House, and then we built the rest of them here, but not that many. We're trying to get involved with people, trying to make it inexpensive, inexpensive to bury your loved ones. And also it's a training program. We like the idea of taking guys that don't know how to use hand tools, bring them here. Most carpentry work you do, you use a lot of hand tools. And then whatever job you go to, you need hand tools. At least you have an experience on using hand tools. So I, I enjoy teaching the people to do that. We got a $5,000 donation from St. Joe's to start this. And then we built our casket. And we, and, uh, we started, and then somebody else gave us 1000 We had a, a church uh, church give us uh, a church uh, in, in Ronica. There's four churches along together. And they each had a... Uh, uh, service, and we brought our caskets in, and we showed them, told them what a training program and our need, and they donate money to the class. What we're supposed to happen is give the people a $10 stipend per hour, then five of that stipend goes into an account, say if they have their driver's license problem, and they can't afford to get it, we would pay that bill for them, and then the other day we put it in their pocket. And also, it helps build the business, plus it's a, we're trying to run it as a co-op. Where in time, I've been here two and a half years. In time, I suppose I'm part of this. I don't know how that's going to work out. But this is what we're here to do. It's not here. We, I don't get anything. We're here just to, you know, you see the need of somebody. You, you see, like the other day, we delivered a casket up this street on Goodman Street. A Spanish guy, 18 years old, died. Family can't afford a casket. The funeral parlor's called, and the family calls, and they accepted our casket. I mean, there you go. There's a guy that can't afford it. Now he's got it's the being a cardboard box. Sure. And he took my casket, the one I designed. <laughs> and I and he just took it. As a matter of fact, he was buried the other day. That's the one I had out here. I remember that. Yeah. That, that big long with the wooden Amish wood I was telling you about. Yeah. That's the one they took. That's the one that's gone. What happened before the Memorials Co-op was here? If somebody passed away and they couldn't afford. Uh, casket they couldn't afford a uh, proper burial. What Let's happened see. with them? Here. What they do is they rent the casket for eight hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. You can rent one. That's what you get. That's that's, what you that's get. it. That's it. Cardboard burial. Wow. That's shaped as a as a coffin, and that's what they hold on to to carry it. Wow. It's like a backboard. Right. 
That's all they use. Well, there's special laws that you got to follow for if you're not embalming or. As far as Rosser Crematorium told us, if we had somebody in hospice that wanted one of our candidates and they died at 8 o'clock in the morning, the hospice house would call them and say, Rosser Crematorium, somebody passed away here. You need a license to drive a dead body. Then he would come and be sick. So if the person was ready, took one of our caskets, a nurse can prepare the body. No one, you know, dress them up, clean them up, put them in the casket. And then at the wake, at the, say at the a house or wherever it is, and then he would pick up the body at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. That is totally legal. But to drive the body anywhere yeah. is $400. Hmm. Then when you drive from... The, where they die to the funeral parts for her. Now they drive them to the church is for her. Mm-hmm. They drive them here is for her. That, that's right. how they make the money. Rasa Crematorium right. said to us, like say if the body's going to be uh, cremated, for instance, and they wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. We, they would take one of our caskets, do that, do the cremation and everything, and they could be cremated in one of our caskets. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how we would do it. He's the only one to take the 1850 and do all that stuff for us. Wow. And then tell me again what happens. Uh, there's a plot somewhere in, was it Riverside? Uh, it's on Lake Avenue, right-hand side, next to St. Bernard's. I think that's Riverside. Right. They that have, a- if you know St. Bernard's Seminary, it's parking lot, shrink halfway, and they extended it. There's indigent burials there, and that's what, we're, that's what we've gotten two in there. And also there's a gentleman, we didn't get to make the caskets with uh, she was too big. We didn't know how that would work. But if a person has a plot that is uh, bought with the family plot and they are buried in another plot somewhere else, the family could donate that plot back to an indigent, which a lot of people do not know. Instead of just sitting there. And we got one from one of the guys that worked at St. Joe's. He was our dishwasher for 10 years and his wife passed away. Frank, mm-hmm. and we did that for them. We didn't build a casket for them because we weren't in the casket business. That's part of what we were, I was looking into after the fact and seeing what the need is out there. What were you doing before this? Before this, I used to go to St. Joe's, donate my time. We used to, I helped start the Dorothy Day House. Uh, that was where we take people off the streets. We put them in housing first. And then we get them into an apartment, and then we worry about getting them services and getting out of them life. So I, I was, me and Tim Segrist are the ones that started uh, housing first. And that made me work with the homeless, and I was across the street helping in the, uh, at St. Joe's also. And that made me realize all these needs. Don kept on stressing the importance of dignity and death. Despite the horrible state of the bodies in Highland Park, the staff and residents of the almshouse value dignity, too. In a way, Memorial's co-op is picking up where the almshouse residents left off, taking care of their own, both in life and in death. I was curious why Don got involved in this in the first place. Years ago, I was homeless, and I had my reasons. I got to have a police divorce, and I, I stayed by Shalott three years, didn't even pass Ridge Road and, until I was broke. And then winter, summer, I slept on my boat. And then I came back to the city, and Tim knew I had uh, talents. And he asked me 
uh, St. Joe's Medical Center, I donated that house with my divorce to them. And I was on a 10-speed bike. I was riding a bike, and they wanted to connect the houses. And they said, how can we connect them? And Tom Malthinger goes in and says, Don Skillman says, he used to own the house. He says, he did. Do you know where he's at? And I went over there, and they said, uh, can you help us do this? I said, yeah, what's in it for me? He gives me $150. He says, would you mark the walls and tell us where they are? Because I know you know. You built it. <laughs> and what he tells me, I tell them where the water lines, the electric lines. And then I started doing work for Tim at the Alexander House. Mm-hmm. And then the next door with the Dorothy Day House, I was going to buy that 35 years ago, but the guy, Steve, bought it before me a day ahead of time. And the house I bought was from the same owner. So we were friends for all these years. And when they were ready to sell the house, Steve says, you guys, you want to buy my house now? I'm ready to retire. And I said, no, but St. Joe's well. So we ended up in there, and this snowballed. I'm down here, and I was in this shop 35 years ago in the Hungerford building. And this is why they let us in, you know, real, real reasonable. And we had to take it, and we got a nice shop. That's what made me do it. It's dignity. I mean, my juice is making people smile when when they're having a bad day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it's that's why I do it. I don't know. Everybody says you should worry about yourself before other people. I have the other problem. I don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like with the the connections you're making between McGuire and Dorothy Day, like this is all people powered. It's not about the money. It's about serving the people that, well, frankly, don't get any respect. Yes. So yeah, yeah. You're, you're doing a good thing here. Yes, yeah, that's, that's my juice. I make people happy. Makes me happy. It's kind of people say I'm crazy but that's what I do it's funny how that works what do you want people to know about the homeless and their needs and what the challenges are and why well here's the thing I have a a small story I used to go to a restaurant on Lake Avenue and I when I had money I had 14 pieces of property I had a lot of money okay a lot of paper rich and I had trucks, and I had plows. And I was sitting in the parking lot, pulling in, and this homeless guy walked up and asked me if he could back and buy him a cheeseburger at the restaurant. And he didn't have beer on his breath. He was a nice guy. I go inside, and I said, sure. I said to the owner, I said, Get it. feed him $5 a day. Give me a slip when I walk in. That's what I wanted to do. Okay. And he did it. About three months, four months later, I come with my truck, and I says, I'm going to leave a juice in my truck so nobody steals it. The batteries are low from plowing. And we just sit in there and I get to, not a problem, you always buy my lunch. And I got a sliver from my wood shop here, he was right in my hand. And he sees it. He says, that's infected. He takes me to the drugstore. We buy some stuff. He gets, you know, this $10, you know, and he goes and gets a pair of pliers. He heats it all up and he's all like this and he takes it out. And I said, what the hell do you know this stuff? He says, and he starts crying. He was a heart surgeon in Buffalo. He went to help the guy live, and his whole family burned up and died. Why is he homeless? He didn't want to know nobody. He ended up freezing about two years later. So you don't know why they're homeless. You have no idea why they're that way. So my point is, you got to get to know the individual. And I used to say, if I got 10 guys and I can help one, I did a lot today. That's why I do it. 
I still don't know his whole name. His name was Hank. I still don't know his whole name. He would not ever tell anybody. Because I would have called his family. I would have done something. I would. Sure. That's what he was afraid of. I would have got him in touch with the people, whoever he, he was looking for. Yeah. And then I found out that he died. Uh, and I, I, I found out too late. I couldn't help. I, could do, I don't know ever what happened to him. Right. Instead of one county institution to house, feed, clothe, and bury the poor, Monroe County now relies on a network of services, often involving nonprofit community partners to fill in the gaps. Dorothy Day House and Memorials Co-op are examples of this. It's important to know that Memorials Co-op doesn't receive county funding. They rely on donations and the little money they get from families of the deceased. This service that used to be provided by the staff and residents of the almshouse is now a standalone business, barely scraping by. But the law states on the death, you die, you get $1,850 from the county, and whoever signs up gets that $1,850. What we're trying to do is, if somebody can't, $1,850 and they can't afford a cask, I'd love to give them one and give the funeral parlors the rest of the 1850 so they can be buried in dignity. But we need donations to do that. Right. We, we're not, in a sense, selling them. They cost, this one here costs $250 in material. Mm -hmm. And the rest just goes to the program. Sure. You know what I mean? You right. gotta keep the doors open. You gotta keep the doors open. So it's not like they get $1,500, the, the cardboard box is six. And this is our this is our interior decorator. <laughs> She's my girl. She's a good a good person. Yeah. She's been here for, for oh two years. She's a she puts the liners in for us, but she doesn't want to be recognized. She's a school teacher. She doesn't want to be good. Are you getting a, a slow trickle of new people? Interested in what you're doing, or is it just actually kind of no? We don't have. I would, I'd like to get somebody who knows ceramics. Yeah, and get in here and mentor the ceramics. Mm -hmm. I know how to do it. My mother did it when I was a mm -hmm. kid. I sort of know how to do it, but we just need people and make urns for people because mm -hmm. that's the new fed. Sure, is urns. And also, I don't know if you know, but we're going to start looking to go green. I've got a little design over there I'm working on, and uh, I would, you know, I think that's, we're going to do both, I guess. Mm -hmm. I love that idea. Now, that came out of the, they were asking you to do less metal hinges, less. Let's, uh, they, they were, I want everything biodegradable, you know, pegs, hinges, glue. Uh, and actually, I was kind of weird. I was coming up with some leather leather hinges, make leather hinges, mm -hmm. but how to attach them, and also hemp rope, mm. where I can make the caskets, go along, this would be all, put, make a knot with a hemp rope, knot with a hemp rope, a knot with a hemp rope. This is my new design I've got next door. Sure. I'm trying to get in the pass at this meeting at three o'clock. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then uh, when I go to Texas and come back, I'm gonna make one. Wow, and, uh, completely I, biodegradable. I'm going to show you. Want to go over and get the little prototype on me? I'll bring sure. It on yeah. So you can understand. 
No, this one here, it's a, what you call a clean room, when we start staining. Okay. When we start staining, when you stain, we have the exhaust fans in there. Yeah. Because, uh, well, we can't do the go green ones, but uh, my point of it is, is the water base is a nice material, but when you use plywood, you have to put more than one coat on it. We try to put one coat of stain and one coat of poly mm -hmm. to keep things down. Here's one of the prototypes I made with the pegs, okay, with the pegs. Here's my newest design. I take this, and they peg in like this. Hear me? Get an idea. And then, this is this corner here. This would be this corner of the casket. Okay. And then, the floor. No metal pieces, no hinges metal pieces to worry about. This, and it's actually a certain glue mm -hmm. that uh, is allowed. It's got like bugs in it. Bug, uh, more like a shellac glue. Okay. It is strong when you got against wood to wood and a peg, but it's not like tight bond that we use on all the other ones where mm -hmm. you can put it in there. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Or like a liquid nail. Okay. But this is my design. I come up walls. It is it's a standard four by four. Two and a half inch and a quarter here, inch and a quarter there, down two and a quarter inches. And then you throw it on a table saw, and you whip it out, and you whip out these, and this whole frame you can whip out in about 15 minutes. That's amazing. And also, if it wasn't a gold green, you could throw screws in there. Mm -hmm. So it could be actually what, because I have a feeling, see, we don't have a lot of room to make, to make, uh, you know, things, uh, you know, caskets that are all ready together. Mm -hmm. You know, we only can make, you know, a few to keep them together. You know what I mean? Because, no, that would be the sign. You know what I mean? And it's all would be just drilled and pegged. And then the rope would go, be drilled through here, put a rope on it, go down halfway down, build another rope on it. And that's what I would, I would do. That's amazing. So, I mean, this is real simple and standard. Sure. But don't make it a question we treat it for gold green. Yeah. That's the only thing I had mm -hmm. to do the television. Mm -hmm. One month here, one month we got pulled in the paper. Mm -hmm. This month we're lucky we had a donation. Yeah. So this is, and, and I'm not, and my determination is I would like to get people in here to, even if they don't, you would say I can spend time and know how to help somebody with this, we'll do this. Yeah, and work together. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not a, it's a need of training people and teach them the living go on living, mm -hmm. and have the, the people die with a little dignity. Since the time when we were just a lonely village on the American frontier, we have witnessed the intersection of poverty, mental illness, and death countless times. With such a massive population growth as ours. Early leaders saw the need, whether out of compassion or cruelty, to create institutions with which to hide those who didn't fit neatly within the confines of our capitalist society. Over the past 200 plus years, we have struggled with the same question. When we die, who will remember us? 
though it's painfully obvious that we have forgotten hundreds of those who lived on the margins of society ages ago. I hope you'll take comfort in the fact that there are those working behind the scenes to make sure no one suffers that same fate ever again. Special thanks to Don and all our friends at Memorials Co-op. I'll put their info in the show notes. Please consider supporting their work. Thanks also to the Rochester Museum and Science Center for research assistance, and Teach Jenkins and Nicole Del Grosso for helping with this episode. For more information, check the episode notes, or visit Rocktales on Instagram and Facebook. I'm Jay Rowe, and thanks for listening. This plaque is dedicated to the men, women, and children whose unmarked graves were discovered in Highland Park in 1984 and subsequently reinterred here. They are believed to have been 19th century residents of the Monroe County Almshouse, Insane Asylum, and Penitentiary that occupied the Highland Park site.